0: I'm going to ask you. Excuse me, sitting today. They uh, took a skin graft from my leg and put it on my forehead. So now, if I need to run with my head, I should be a little quicker. Just a little humor. So I'm sure we've, oh, children, ages three years old, at second grade you're dismissed to Children's Church. Thank you. You know, so I'm sure we've all made promises at some times in our life. So how many of you have ever asked for a sign or have been asked for a sign that you would truly keep your promise? Anybody? They want a sign. What did you say? What did you do to convince them that you would keep that promise? You know, when a man and a woman are married, they promise to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health and love, to love, cherish, and to obey till death do us part. And what they're saying is that the only way that their marriage can end is when one or the other physically dies. It's a serious commitment to one another. Some other ways that we show the seriousness of keeping our promises is to maybe raise our right hand, or putting our hand over our heart, or putting our hand on the Bible. In the Bible, one of the ways that they showed the seriousness of their promises was to put their hand under the person's thigh when making a vow. In Genesis 24, Abraham wants to to make sure that Isaac gets his wife from his homeland and not from Canaan. So Abraham had his servant put his hand under his thigh to swear an oath. The thigh was considered the strongest muscle in the body, so by swearing an oath in this way... It's said that the actions of those individuals, which is represented by the hand, are placed under oath to trust in the strength of Yahweh, represented by the thigh of the believer, to play a part in working to fulfill Yahweh's promises. You know, another way we might try to convince someone that we are serious about keeping our promises is something to this effect. We might say, cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, or something to that effect. How many have ever said that? Another way that you may have convinced someone that you're serious about your promises is the pinky promise. Anybody ever did that? To make a pinky promise involves the interlocking of the pinkies of two people to signify that a promise has been made. And if you didn't know, the idea behind this gesture was to signify that the person who breaks the promise can have their pinky finger broken by the other. You might wanna think twice about the next pinky promise. But if you think that would hurt, the possible origin of the pinky promise may be Japan, where it's known as the yubikuri. They believe that if you break a pinky promise, you'd have to cut off your pinky finger. The word yubikuri means finger cut off. So two weeks ago, Pastor Stewart taught from the beginning of chapter 15, in which God reiterated the promise to Abram about having a child. God told Abram that he would have his own biological child and that his offspring's would number the stars in the sky. And in this morning's passage, God reiterates the promise to Abram that the land that has been promised to him and his descendants will truly be his. And we will see that God's promises do three things for Abram. They affirm Abram's call, which stimulates his faith. They assure Abram about the covenant, which calms his fears. And they anticipate the fulfillment of the promise, giving Abraham hope for the future. God will convince Abram that he takes his promises very seriously, that he can fully believe that what he promises will happen. And today, we can also believe in the promises of God, and we can fully believe that what he says is true and will happen. And that brings us to our big idea this morning, which is God takes his promises seriously. So before we dive into our text this morning, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Lord God, we ask you to pour out your Holy Spirit on us this morning. We ask that you would open our hearts and minds to what you want us to know, what you want to say to us, and what you want us to share with those that we come in contact with this week. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's three points this morning. Our first point is affirmation, and that's found in Genesis 15, verses 7 to 8. You can follow along as I read that. This is what God's Word says. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So as our scripture starts this morning, Abram's still in the vision where the word of the Lord has come to him, just like we were two weeks ago. It's the same vision. And we're told for the first time that it was the Lord who brought Abram out of Ur, And the reason that he did this was to give Abram the land so he could possess it. For the first time in Genesis, the Lord calls himself Yahweh. And this introduction would make it clear that Abram must take the speaker seriously. The Lord reminds Abram what he has done for him in the past. By identifying himself in this way, it proves to Abram who God was. And affirms his call on Abram's life. It is God who called Abram out of his homeland and into the foreign land which was promised to him. And by reaffirming his call, the Lord was stimulating Abram's faith. But then, you know, we see something interesting where Abram's questioning what God had just said. And it's interesting in light of verse 6, which I'll go back to the end of Pastor Stewart's uh, verses two weeks ago. But verse 6 says this Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So what's happened between verses 6 and 8? I believe the difference in Abram's mind is that the promise of the land was different than the promise of a biological child. There's no major roadblocks for Sarai and him to have a child. She may be barren at this time, but Abram could believe that God would open her womb when the time was right. But as for the land, there are many native peoples living there who already possess it. And Abram probably felt helpless to dispossess them Dispossess the native peoples and take over the land for himself. He's probably trying to wrap his head around how in the world could he and his descendants be able to possess and enjoy this land. So we notice that Abram calls God sovereign Lord, which signals that, signals that what he's about to say is submissive, but it's also very bold. He trusts in who God is and what He was saying, but he wanted a sign because he couldn't understand or see how in the world that could happen. This does not mean that Abram didn't have faith in God's promises. He was just asking for a sign to confirm it. You know, we've seen God give signs to many people in the Bible, such as Moses, Hezekiah, and probably one of the most famous ones is Gideon, who, if you remember, put the fleece of wool out so that he would know that it was God's will to use him to deliver the Israelites from the Midianites. We also saw in the study of the book of John that we did, that Jesus did signs. And we see these words in John 20, verses 30, 31 to, 30, 30 to 31, which tells us the purpose of, God, of John's gospel. This is what it says. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Asking for a sign did not constitute a lack of faith on Abram's part. His call has already been affirmed by God, and he's now looking for affirmation of the promise to possess the land. Abram's faith is not on shaky ground. Instead, his faith is being stimulated by God's promises, and he's looking for a sign that would further grow his faith in God's promises. You know, faith is an important part of our Christian walk. In this day and age where we, that we live where people seem to be losing their faith left and right, we must allow our faith to be stimulated and to stay alive. One of the ways our faith is stimulated is by meditating on the promises of God in his word and seeing how they are being fulfilled in our daily lives. And that brings us to our first next step on the back of your communication card this morning, which is to meditate on the promises of God, seeing how they are being fulfilled in my daily life, and allow them to stimulate my faith. Now, I think when we start to think about other things and and we say we're losing our faith, we're not in the word. We're not thinking about the promises of God. We're not meditating on them. We're not just doing the things that we need to do. And if if our relationship with Christ is alive, then we won't lose our faith. We will see in the next point that God doesn't get angry because Abram asked for a sign. In fact, God is gonna give Abram a sign that assures him that the promise of the land is already a foregone conclusion. The Lord will perform a ritual that shows he is serious about the promises that he makes and Abram will know for sure that God will faithfully fulfill his promise to Abram. The second point is called assurance and that's found in verses 9 through 11 and then I'm going to jump to 17. Again follow along as I read this is what God's word says. So the Lord said to him bring me a heifer a goat and a ram each three years old along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. And then I'm going to move now down to verse 17. When the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. God asked Abram to bring a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old goat, three-year-old ram, a dove, and a young pigeon to him. And the words bring or take are often used to introduce a ritual such as a sacrifice. These animals are the same ones that God will command the Israelites to use later on for their sin, fellowship, and burnt offerings. We see this in Leviticus 9, 2-3, which says, he, meaning God, said to Aaron, take a bull calf for your sin offering and a ram for your burnt offering. Both without defect, and present them before the Lord. Then say to the Israelites Take a male goat for a sin offering, a calf and a lamb, both a year old and without defect, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for a fellowship offering to sacrifice before the Lord. Abram's actions here are reminiscent of a sacrifice. Abram then prepares the sacrificial animals and places them on the ground according to God's instructions. Then we see that birds of prey come down, and they try to drag these carcasses away, but Abram drives them away. Abram driving the birds away could be symbolic of God's future protection of his chosen people on the basis of Abram's faith. It also seems to foreshadow the obstacles which Abram's descendants would experience before entering the promised land. Briscoe says God's promises would be fulfilled, but not without pain and trial for Abram's descendants. So now jumping down to verse 17, when we, here's where we see how the ritual has played out between the Lord and Abram, and then I'll come back and pick up verse 12. So we notice that the sun is set and it's dark. A smoking pot and a blazing torch appear to pass between the animal pieces. The smoking pot and blazing torch represent the presence of God. And this reminds us of the cloud by day and the fire by night, which was the presence of the Lord protecting and guiding the Israelites in the wilderness. And we notice that the Lord passes through the animal pieces, but Abram does not. And that's important because it meant that the fulfillment of the promise rested with the Lord alone. It was unconditional that Abram did not have to do anything for the promise to be fulfilled. So what about this strange ritual? What what does it mean? First of all, the ritual would have been known in the ancient world, and Abram would have certainly understood the meaning of it. Second, the ritual was used to formally seal a solemn agreement or covenant between two equal parties. By passing through the animal pieces, you were clearly stating that if you did not keep your promise, then you could be cut in two, just like the animal pieces. Kind of like the pinky promise. Normally, if the parties were not equals, the inferior party was the only one who had to walk through the animal pieces. But here the superior party, the Lord, was declaring that if he did not keep his promise to Abram, he could literally be cut in two. Of course that that was possible for that to happen to God. God is showing an immense grace to Abram here. This act alone would have proven to Abram and to those who heard the story later how serious the Lord was about keeping his promises. This was the sign that Abram needed that took all his doubt away. It calmed all of his fears. Gibson states by God's willingness to go through this it let Abram know that nothing could stand in God's way of the fulfillment of his promises. His own divine honor was at stake in this matter. Now the Lord also gives us many promises in his word. And those promises should calm our fears as well, should take all our doubt away, that he will do for us what he says in his word. But a lot of times we doubt and we're fearful about a lot of things. And we see our prayers answered or God's promises fulfilled in our lives over and over again, but we still doubt. And we're still afraid. And I want to challenge not only myself, but you as well, to trust and not doubt in God's promises. All his promises are trustworthy no matter what. He takes his promises seriously. That brings us to our second next step on the back of your communication card, which is to believe the promises of God, allow them to calm your fears, and take all your doubt away. The third point this morning is called anticipation. And that's found in verses 12 to 16 and then 18 to 21. Here, Abram finds out for the first time that he will not personally possess the promised land. And he also finds out how and why his descendants will come to possess it. There is an anticipation and a hope for the future that Abram has, even though he will not see it. And the future of his descendants will be full of hardship. Starting with verse 12, this is what God's word says. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and after their, afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace, and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And then moving down to verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, to your descendants, I give this land, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, Amor, Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergeshites, and the Jebusites. So we see that Abram falls into a deep sleep as the sun's setting and a thick and dreadful darkness come over him. Deep sleep, fear, and darkness all suggest all-inspiring divine activity, such as when God caused Abraham to fall into a deep sleep in order to take out one of his ribs to create Eve. Abram's dread comes from being in the presence of the Lord. As human beings, to be in the presence of an almighty and holy God should cause us to have a holy fear. The presence of the Lord is not something that we should take lightly. Abram is told that his descendants would be strangers in a country that was not their own. They'd be slaves and they'd be mistreated for 400 years. That would be enough to give Abram a sense of dread and bring darkness to his soul. But God gives Abram hope for the future of his descendants. He says that the nation that enslaves them will be punished and that his descendants will come out with great possessions. Now, God doesn't mention the nation that enslaves Abram's descendants, but today we know it is Egypt. We also know that the people of Israel asked for gold, silver, and clothing from the Egyptians before leaving Egypt, after the Passover. And that the Egyptians were glad to give them those things and be rid of them. So I think Jackie read this this morning. I'm going to read it again. But Exodus 12, 36. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. I've always kind of liked that word plundered. It's interesting how God gave them what they needed for their trip in the wilderness. Now, God then calms Abram's fears about his own future. He promises him that he will go to his fathers in peace, and be buried at a good or ripe old age. To go to his fathers in peace was a promise that Abram would live a good quality of life with a sense of contentment and fulfillment. He would also live to a ripe old age, meaning that he would enjoy a long, healthy life. He would have a great quality of life until the end and be spared a future of hardship and pain. God's promises gave Abram hope for his future, and they also give us hope for our future as well which brings us to the third next step on the back of your communication card. It says, believe the promises of God and allow them to give me hope for my future on earth and in heaven. Next, we're told why the Lord will hand over the promised land to him and his descendants and why they have to wait 400 years. They're being given the land because of the sin of the Amorites. The Amorites are representative of all the Canaanite peoples in the land. But the nation of Israel has to wait because the sin of those peoples has not yet reached its full measure. Their sin was so perverted that it was even an abomination to the earth. In Leviticus 18, it says that it was so bad that they will be vomited from the land. That speaks to the patience, the justice and the holiness of God. You know, He doesn't just give the land to the Israelites without giving the Canaanites a chance to repent. If God had done that, it would have been unfair and unjust to the Lord. The Old Testament wars between the Israelites and the Canaanites were acts of justice, not aggression, and their judgment was mercifully delayed by God. It also shows the patience that God has for them as well. Now I think of Second Peter three nine, which says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You know, God wants everyone to come to repentance, no matter how evil they may be for a time. He's always going to do the right thing, even if it means giving the Canaanites 400 more years to repent and turn to him before giving their land over to the chosen people. And then God makes a covenant with Abram. Now, this is the first mention of the word covenant. Before, these things have just been promises to Abram and not a formal covenant. But now Abram knows for sure that these things will take place. The Lord also gave specific boundaries of the land that Abram's descendants would possess. This area was from the northern reaches of the Euphrates to the land of Egypt. The western boundary was the Mediterranean, and the eastern boundary was the Jordan River. This area has been calculated by scholars to be about 300,000 square miles, which is an area bigger than the second largest state in the U.S., which is Texas, at 261,797 square miles. You know, God also names all the nations that were presently living there. And we can notice that there are 10 nations mentioned. And if you remember when we were talking about maybe Revelation or even in other places where the numbers of the Bible are important, we're reminded that the number 10 in the Bible signifies completeness, meaning that they would completely possess all the land that God has promised to them. One more thing we need to think about God has told the Israelites that the land would be theirs as long as they didn't do the same detestable practices that the Canaanites did. And we know that they did not obey God, and they were also displaced from their land. According to scholars, Israel has never fully possessed the land promised to them by God. They may have been close as an empire, especially during the reign of King David and King Solomon, but they they have never fully possessed it as a homeland. But one day when the Lord returns, his promise will be realized. And again, that should give us pause because there are some promises of God that will continue on no matter what, such as, you know, he'll never leave us nor forsake us. But there are others that require obedience from us. I'm reminded of our memory verse from a couple months ago, Psalm 66, 18, which says, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And if we're not obedient to what the Lord commands us to do, then he will not listen to our prayers. The promise of listening to our prayers is conditional on not cherishing sin in our hearts. Yet God is the ultimate promise keeper. He always keeps his promises, and we do not need to worry that he will. In our scripture this morning, we have seen that Abram's faith was stimulated when God affirmed his call. We saw that God calmed his fears by assuring that he would be faithful to his promises. And we have seen that his promises gave Abram hope for his future as he anticipated going to his fathers in peace and that his descendants could anticipate being able to possess the land once they came out of slavery in Egypt and hardship in the wilderness. So in conclusion, i want to read some verses from God's word showing how his promises stimulate our faith, calms our fears, and gives us hope for the future today. First, God's promises should stimulate our faith. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 3 says, But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. Deuteronomy 7.9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, we can rely on 100% of God's promises to be fulfilled, and that should stimulate our faith. Second, God's promises should calm our fears. Now, there are so many verses that talk about not being afraid because God is with us. Here's just a couple. In Isaiah 41.10, it says, Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Psalm 23, 4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And Hebrews 13, 6 says, So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? We can rely on 100% of God's promises to be fulfilled, and that should calm our fears. Third, God's promises should give us hope for our future, on this earth. Lamentations three twenty-one to 23 says this, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And of course, one that we, a lot of us know, Jeremiah twenty-nine eleven: for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. You know, but God's promises should also give us hope for our future in heaven. John 14, 1-3 says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. Revelation three eleven says, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Matthew 24, 30 to 31 says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And lastly, Acts 17, 31 says, Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. We can rely on 100% of God's promises to be fulfilled, and that should give us hope for our future on earth and hope for our future in heaven. Now I pray that the promises of God found in his word will encourage you this morning. As Gene and Roxy come to lead us in our final song of the day, let's bow our heads for prayer. Holy and awesome God, we we thank you for the promises that you have given us in your word. We know that they are trustworthy and true, and we pray that they would stimulate our faith, they would calm our fears, and give us hope for our future here on earth and for eternity in heaven as well. We give you all honor, glory, and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.